Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Drew Sikansky, and today we will begin to examine one of the most discussed sport organizations in the United States, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, also known as the NCAA. Now, the NCAA has been a focal point in the sport conversation and debate since its inception in the early 1900s. The organization is polarizing, as almost all those touched by it have strong feelings about a plethora of topics that make up the college sport debate. This notion is voiced well by the current president of West Virginia University, Gordon Gee, who stated in 2007, quote, I'm an avid supporter of intercollegiate athletics, but I believe intercollegiate athletics is in danger of losing its direction and its soul. By that I mean it has become corporatized, it has become isolated, and it has become disconnected from the vitality and the values of the university. But where did the NSA lose its direction? When did it become corporatized? And was college sport ever really linked to the values of the university? Today, we will deep dive into the history of college sport in the NCAA to try to uncover the answer to these questions and more. Before discussing the NCAA, let's first begin by exploring the history of sports on college campuses. College campuses in the United States in the late 1700s and early 1800s were almost completely devoid of athletics. Life on campus during this time was described as dull and highly regulated, with faculty holding high academic standards that required students to devote themselves fully to their studies. As Andrew Peabody noted in describing the early 1800s at Harvard, quote, the student's life was hard. Morning prayers were in summer at six and the winter, about a half an hour before sunrise in a bitterly cold chapel. Thence, half of each class passed into the several recitation rooms in the same building, and three quarters of an hour later the bell rang for the second set of recitations, including the remaining half of students. Then came breakfast, which in the college commons consisted solely of coffee, hot rolls, and butter, except when members of a mess had succeeded in pinning to the neither surface of a table by a two-pronged fork some slices of meat from the previous day's dinner. Between 10 and 12, every student attended another recitation or a lecture. Dinner was half past 12, a meal not deficient in quality, but by no means appetizing to those who had come from neat homes and well-ordered tables. There was another recitation in the afternoon, except on Saturday. Then evening prayer at six, or in the winter, at early twilight, then the evening meal, plain as the breakfast, with tea instead of coffee and cold bread of the consistency of wool for a hot roll. After tea, the dormitories rang with song and merriment till the study bell at eight in the winter at nine in the summer sounded the curfew for fun and frolic, proclaiming dead silence throughout the college premises under penalty of, dorm of dormitory visit from the officer of entry, and in cases of serious offenses, a private or public abomination. This was the life for five days a week. A scholar named Guy Lewis noted that colleges adopted this sort of rigid environment out of the belief that higher education should be about, quote, intellectual development and moral improvement. As a result, almost all extracurricular activities were viewed as distractions 
and thus games and sport were seen as unwanted by faculty members. However, accounts from the time found that students would often grow restless and act out against the faculty in the university, leading to acts of vandalism across campus. To try to combat this campus disorder and provide students a healthy outlet for their energy, universities began to build gymnasiums and provide organized physical training to their students. Yet this early physical training failed to attract the attention of a large number of students as they were seemingly uninterested in the university's organized activities. The movement was not a complete failure though, as it laid the foundation for students to grow participation in other forms of physical activities. More specifically, in the 1840s, students began to participate more and more in ball games, such as football, baseball, and cricket. These ball games were initially played by students at the same university in a form of intracollegiate sport that loosely modeled present-day intramurals. To organize these and other physical activities, sport clubs began to form at individual institutions, beginning with Yale's creation of a boat club in 1843. These early clubs still did not engage in intercollegiate competitions, but rather were found and run by students to promote the sport and provide a social outlet for the members at their university. This began to change in 1852 when the first intercollegiate competition was held in Crewe between Harvard and Yale. Sponsored and paid for by an individual named James Ecklins, and seen as a means to promote the newly opened Boston to Montreal Railway, the athletic competition between the two schools was set up to be a spectacle. In his book, Pay for Play, A History of Big Time Athletic Reform, Ronald Smith describes the competition in the following way. Quote, As a purely commercial venture of the newly opened Boston, Concord, and Montreal Railroad, the first intercollegiate athletic contest in America was secondary to the promotional wishes of what would be the dominating industrial success of the 19th century, the railroad industry. To James Eklund, the superintendent of the Boston to Montreal rail line, it was a business deal, and he would, quote, pay all the bills, end quote, for an eight-day rowing vacation if Harvard and Yale athletes would agree to put on several rowing exhibitions. Though poor weather limited the eight days of the race to a single day, the event was considered a success with Harvard winning the initial competition. Three years later, Harvard and Yale held a rematch with Harvard again winning. The second contest was not without controversy, though, as Harvard used a graduate student to coxswain their boat. Yale protested the race, and Harvard agreed to restrict participation in the future races to only those students who were undergraduates. Thus, the first debate over eligibility in college sport was resolved and a loose structure for competitions began to take shape. Over the next 50 years, intercollegiate athletic competitions became more and more prominent. In 1859, the first intercollegiate baseball contest was held, followed by the first intercollegiate football game in 1869 and the first track and field competition in 1876. As with intracollegiate competitions, these contests between universities were originally organized by students who took care to set the time and place of the competitions and decided upon the rules of the contest. As more and more contests occurred in various sports, students began to develop athletic associations 
such as the Rowing Association of American Colleges, which was founded in 1871, and the Intercollegiate Football Association, founded in 1873. These associations were set up to help govern and standardize the contest. More specifically, the main goal was to first determine who was eligible to compete and thus avoid the issues Harvard and Yale faced with their second crew meet, and to establish the basic sporting guidelines that would govern the games and competitions. Student control over athletic events was not long-lived, though, as faculty came to worry about the effect athletics was having on the student population. Many argued athletics was not becoming of a gentleman, reinforced unethical behavior, and was harmful to the ideals of higher education. Additionally, faculty claimed sports were distracting students from their education and their studies, and as a result, the faculty became involved and sought to take control of intercollegiate athletics through the formation of university athletic committees. These university committees, the first of which was established at Harvard in the 1880s, soon joined together and established multi-member organizations with the hopes of addressing the issues the faculty had come to notice. In addition to faculty involvement, university presidents started to seek control over athletics towards the end of the 1880s. As Ronald Smith described, quote, presidents found that athletics lent them a vehicle for advertising their institutions with little cost, end quote, and that athletics could serve as a means to attract positive attention to a university. Alumni groups and governing boards also began to take notice and feel pride in the accomplishments of the university's athletic teams, and thus pressured presidents to establish winning programs. As students, faculty, and presidents all sought to have influence and control over college sport in the late 1800s and early 1900s, issues continued to rise within the competitions themselves. Most notably, college football was faced with multiple scandals relating to the game's brutality. The scandals included the death and maiming of multiple athletes, forced universities to take a serious look at the sport, and either reform it or remove it from campuses altogether. President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, became so concerned with the violence of football that he called Harvard, Yale, and Princeton to a meeting in 1905 to discuss reform. At the same time, a handful of smaller colleges from across the country convened a meeting they labeled the McCracken Conference to discuss what should be done with the game. On December 28, 1905, the 62 universities established the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States, which was later renamed in 1910 to the National Collegiate Athletic Association, with the purpose of, quote, curbing the most brutal acts of violence so that the game of football would continue to attract large number of spectators and large gate receipts, end quote. Thus, as Smith notes, in its creation, the NCA, quote, had almost nothing to do with how athletics fit into higher education, end quote. Just as problematic in its infancy, the NCA had no legislative power. Rather, the organization was established to determine a set of standardized rules for football and to serve as a debating society for faculty representatives interested in amateur athletics. While annual conferences were held and bylaws were set, it was understood that these rules were only suggestions. With no legislative power, individual institutions and conferences were left to determine their own rules. 
However, conferences had little to no investigatory power as they chose to leave the authority to the individual member institutions, thus establishing a practice known as the home rule. As a result, NCA punishment for rule violators was rare at best. During the early years of the NCA, individual university presidents tried to reform college sport at times, but all efforts were seemingly for naught, as presidents own governing boards, alumni, and students fought hard to retain the past practices of college sport. In all of these efforts, two main issues commonly came to the forefront, commercialization of college sport and the notion of amateurism. The NCAA first defined amateur athletes in 1912 as, quote, one who enters and takes part in athletic contests purely in obedience to the play impulses or for the satisfaction of purely play motives and for exercise, training, and social pleasures derived from sport. To help maintain amateur ideals, the NCAA stipulated that those participants on athletic teams enter college for academic and not athletic purposes. However, issues of providing athletes with scholarships for their athletic participation, having athletes, particularly baseball and basketball athletes, paid to play in the summer, and having paid professional college coaches often led to debates amongst institutions, conferences, and NCAA leaders about the definition and place of amateur athletes in college. The commercialization of college athletics dates back to the first Harvard-Yale crew meet in which James Eklund paid the expenses of the competing institutions. In 1903, commercialization was symbolized by Harvard building the first concrete stadium to house their football team. Other institutions soon followed suit and began to build large stadiums as a means to garner greater gate receipts to subsidize the cost of their athletic programs. Additionally, in 1921, the NCAA grew its objectives and arguably the level of commercialization by beginning to offer national championships, the first of which was held in the sport of track and field. Most notable to the growth of commercialization was the addition of a national championship in men's basketball in 1939 and the large broadcasting right deals that followed. While these issues continued to grow over time, the structure and purpose of the NCAA from the start made it almost impossible to have non-commercialized amateur athletes. As F.W. Marble noted in 1919, quote, We are told by college officials that we must conduct our sport and play along amateur lines, but we must finance them along the lines that are purely commercial and professional. Over the first 40 years, the structure of the NCAA remained fairly consistent, while the purpose only changed slightly. In 1948, though, due to continual growth of commercialization, issues related to the professionalism-amateurism debate, and in an effort to establish a balanced playing field, the NCAA passed the Sanity Codes to, quote, alleviate the proliferation of exploitative practices in the recruitment of student-athletes. The Sanity Code set the structure for college amateur athletes, providing the payment of athletes' tuition, professional coaches, and allowed the NCAA and the newly created Compliance Committee and Fact-Finding Committee to have enforcement power for the first time to punish violators. Though the Sanity Code was later repealed, 1948 marked a change in the NCAA as they moved from a debating society to a legislative and an enforcement organization. 
Further changes in the NCA occurred in 1952 when the organization created a television committee to regulate television contracts for its member institutions. Maybe more important, though, is the creation of a second division within the NCA, as well as the creation of different membership categories. As with the Sanity Code, these changes were made to establish an equal playing field for all member institutions. More specifically, it allowed like institutions to compete against one another in athletic competitions and kept large state and small private institutions separate. This separation enticed a number of small colleges and universities to join the NCA, helping it drastically grow its membership and thus increase its revenue production. In 1973, the NCA changed its structure again, shifting from the two-division format to the three-division format they labeled Division I, Division II, and Division III. This changed in 1978 again, when Division I institutions split into Division I-A, Division I-AA, Division I-AAA, and later rebranded in 2006 as Division I-FBS, FCS, and non-football. More changes were introduced in 1996 as university presidents took over control of the NCA and formed a new structure with a president-dominated board of directors and a management council. Prior to this, the governance of the NCA fell under faculty and athletic administrative appointees. This change in structure was undertaken as more and more money began to be infused into college sport. As Ronald Smith put it, quote, Presidents sensed the need to be in control as big money came with conference realignment and conference TV contracts. Additionally, presidents felt that by taking control back, they would be able to address and reform the continual issues with academic integrity, commercialization, and amateurism. Smith further pointed out that such changes were not without issue, as, quote, Division I institutions moved away from a democratic form with each institution having a vote on all issues to a representative system of governance in which conferences, not institutions, determine representatives. As a result, large Division I FBS institutions took a more dominant role in the governance, resulting in rules and bylaws that favored them over smaller, less wealthy universities. Five years after the new structure was established, the Knight Commission noted that presidents alone cannot reform the NCA. Rather, they suggested other key stakeholder groups like faculty, governing boards, and students needed to be involved in the regulation of college sport in order to make significant changes and address the many issues that enveloped the NCA over the years. Thus, as time has passed and college sport has grown and evolved, the governance structure has changed drastically. Beginning as student-run activities and quickly shifting to faculty, president, and alumni-controlled competitions, control over college sport as well as the rules that govern it have evolved over time. For example, in 2015, Division I FBS conferences were able to pass an NCAA bylaw permitting the ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and SEC conferences to adopt future NCAA bylaws that would only regulate themselves, creating the newly dubbed Power 5 or Autonomy 5. Presently, 90% of college sport is governed at the national level by the NCA, which is made up of 1,117 colleges and universities across three divisions and 100 athletic conferences. The organization supports 24 different sports and hosts 90 national championships for approximately half a million student-athletes. The NCAA stated goal has changed since its initial inception as well. 
and it's now stated to be the prioritization of academics, well-being, and fairness so that college athletes can succeed on the field, in the classroom, and for life. So now that we have an understanding of the history of college sport, we can take a look back at that Gordon Gee quote from 2007. Quote, I am an avid supporter of intercollegiate athletics, but I believe intercollegiate athletics is in danger of losing its direction and its soul. By that I mean it has become corporatized, it has become isolated, and it has become disconnected from the values of the university. Understanding the initial inception of college sport, do you agree with what Gordon Gee is saying? It can be argued that college sport from its infancy was always corporatized, that it has grown over the years to become more corporate, but that ever since the first intercollegiate athletic competition in 1852, there were corporate entities at play. It can be argued that college sport has always been isolated on college campuses, as college sport was initially put in to separate students from the academic and provide them an outlet for their physicality and their pent-up energies. But is that necessarily a bad thing? We will discuss that and more in future episodes of The Sport Professor.